Hi there. Welcome to Finding Space with Alex Tyson, the show that celebrates the everyday legends who put in the hard work to become who they want to be and live the life they want to live. For people who understand that when we practice compassion and find wisdom within ourselves, we find success and happiness. Join me in hearing amazing stories from everyday individuals who have found incredible personal and professional growth through varied and, at times, wild methods of self-improvement and self-responsibility. And through their unique perspectives and work, have gone on to better the lives of those around them. From nurturing health to growing your wealth or enjoying the present to crafting your future, no aspect of life is off topic. And hey guys, just a quick note that we recorded this podcast before we rebranded our company from iHealth Saunas to Found Space. So if you hear any references of iHealth Saunas, that's why. Today, I'm sweating it out with Brendan Dalligan. Brendan is a meditation and body-mind detoxification coach. He's based in Sydney where he runs regular meditation workshops for those who want to discover their highest potential through meditation. After discovering the intimate connection between inner mind suffering and physical illness after a journey recovering from colitis, he now offers one-on-one mindfulness and detoxification coaching for both mind and body transformation. In this podcast, we talk about various meditation modalities, including Zazen and Vipassana. We discuss the important role meditation plays in our overall state of well-being, dealing with suffering, the internal silence within us, the power of being present in life, and much, much more. And so I give you Brendan Delegan. Brendan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Pleasure. How important uh, a role does meditation play in our overall health and well-being? Well, I'd say it's an interesting question because I normally get questions about kind of how to meditate or am I doing it right or how to silence my mind. But in terms of our overall health, I think the importance of meditation is that we're often so we're often so identified with, with thoughts and with emotions. And then the almost automatic reaction to that is to try to fix them, to try to improve on that, to try to push away this, I don't know, anger or fear or something and replace it with something that's more pleasant. But what meditation does is, and this is a bit of a misconception, is it doesn't actually change or replace those thoughts, it dis, you disidentify with them in meditation. So there's an observing of them. And once you're observing them, then there's a clear distance from what you are and what they are. So if you can observe it, then you're not it. So therefore, there's already kind of not much of a problem in that as such. So in terms of our overall health, Like that's so essential. I've found it incredibly life-changing in my life Um, because I genuinely used to think I was my thoughts. Um, If I, if a belief would come that um, I don't know, like that's of some danger or this is uh, or judging, I would genuinely think that is true, you know, you know, and having that, Having that distance and just the, the knowing fact that th- that is a thought 
and is not truth. That was enough to make a huge difference in my life and, and of course, in so many other people too. Mm. Why is it that we're not, I guess, programmed from birth to see our thoughts as something other than who we are? Because, you know, we, we go through life and, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about meditation at the moment. It's out there. There's apps. <laughs> it's kind of in vogue almost. However, it's not always been like that and we're certainly not taught it uh, when we're young or I certainly wasn't. Uh, so, you'd think that something so uh, critical in a way would have somehow evolved with us so we knew that when I'm thinking that I really want that pizza, that's not actually me. <laughs> yeah, I know that thought. Um, <laughs> um, so there's, I think there's two sides to it, really. Um, one is the conditioning, but I'll touch on the first side, which is, is probably more of a biological thing. I think just innately, we're biologically programmed for survival. Like this, this body-mind mechanism, this machine, will do anything it can to survive in the world. So when any potential threat or, um, yeah, any potential threat or, um, to this body and that, that could jeopardize this, the health, um, ultimately there, there's an automatic reaction to survive and by any means necessarily, really. In, in the animal kingdom, like animals will, you know, if there's a threat, they'll either run or they'll attack, um, depending on the animal. But obviously with us, we obviously some, you know, we do do that too. Um, but we're a little bit more, uh, obviously more evolved, more conscious beings. So we are a little bit more sophisticated in our survival mechanism. So therefore, if, for instance, if I felt threatened by you because of, I don't know, say, I perceive you're looking at me in this strange way or something like that, then I can make up a story. Then I can say, why does he always look at me like that? You know, like, why is he, you know, he, why does he have to give me that dirty look something like that? And, but this is my projection to protect myself from the actual inner state I'm experiencing. So in order to, to survive, I'm projecting that this, <laughs> this, this attack is coming which is almost all the time, and even if it isn't, um, almost all the time it's, it's false. It's usually some kind of illusion. And so then the story comes to, to justify why I feel this way. And that's like a kind of, um, it's, I mean, we are sort of now going into the conditioning side of it because um, they're very in, in, innately uh, linked anyway, biological and, and uh, the conditional side of it. Um, but in, in terms of, I'd say, like why we're not, like, or why we're sort of uh, not taught this or why, I, I don't, I think it's just, I don't think it's any, I know there's a lot of conspiracy stuff out there and um, I just think it's, the nature of the mind, it's, it's an opportunist. So I think when there's, for instance, profit to be made, it's not like, oh, let's capture people and, you know, and, and, and enslave them into these deep-rooted habits. It's just I think it's an opportunist thing where 
um, like you say about the pizza, if I somehow discover that, oh, if I make bread and cheese and tomato in this way and, and oven it like this, and then he loves it. And so does she, and so does he. And, and so I'm going to just keep doing it. And then I can charge money for that. Like, I just think it's, it's more kind of a, a, a I don't want to say innocent, but it's just uh, more of a just uh, blind, ignorant <laughs> sort of way. So I think, yeah, that's that's kind of yeah. I mean, we're a product of our environment, right? And it just so happens that we're growing up in this in this uh, environment at the moment. Yeah, we're part of this generation. We have our own experiences, you know, and we're kind of lucky in a way. I mean, I'm only. Turn at 28 in a couple months. Uh, I think you're a somewhat similar age. And there's this global shift in consciousness that's happening. You know, yeah. we're aware of this stuff. Well, perhaps the generation before us aren't, you know. I look up yeah. to my mum. She's uh, in her 60s and she just started using Sam Harris's meditation app. It's like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, my mum is uh, like, you know, I'm not going to say she's 60 because she'll kill me. Um, but she's, I think she's 57 now, 56 maybe. Um, and yeah, she's, she's, um, she's just started, you know, I don't want to say, you know, she's not in full blown into meditation, but yeah, she's, it's slowly, she started to read a few quotes and she sees things I'm doing and stuff and the curiosity. Builds. So every, everyone's at a different, different point. Yeah. Would you say with regard to the distance of your thoughts, can you get further and further away from them and see them as uh, less of a impingent over time? Or is it once you understand that, boom, there's a distance there? So there's two processes in meditation. And the first is the, the, the gradual thing, like you explained there. You sl slowly, a distance is created and more more and more over time and the the disidentification from particular thoughts and thought patterns slowly starts to happen and as a result one experiences more peace relaxation and just a restfulness however there is a sudden moment that can happen um and this is sort of um i guess you could call it a moment of uh, self-realization or suddenly there's a light bulb moment where you understand what your true nature is and eat, or not you understand it, but you actually experience it. Um, but actually both is, is, is what happens, but to get the light bulb moment, you have to, well, you don't have to, but in order to kind of stay in a, to stay in the, the abiding realization of your true nature, there is a gradual process that usually happens or if you have a light bulb moment, it doesn't last and then the gradual process continues. So yeah. Um, and, but obviously it, that's, you know, quite, <laughs> this is for people to really want to know that the, their true self nature more than they just want to sort of, uh, you know, calm down their anxiety a bit or something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, what are the typical kind of ways to get there? Right? I like what you're saying because it's <laughs> it resonates with me, right? Sometimes you just got to do the work. <laughs> yeah, you got to put the yeah. time in. 
yeah. to whatever it is uh, that you want to improve upon. Uh, what are the typical paths there? You know, I understand that there's um, there's a Vipassana route, there's a Zochen route, there's a Zen route, um, there's apps, <laughs> there's just sitting in silence and observing what's going on. Um, in some ways, it can be a bit daunting for someone who hears about meditation. I mean, where do you want to start? And what's the, I guess, what are the differences? Um, and I guess it's also probably important to understand where you want to get to, like you said, right? You may not, for some people, the idea of enlightenment is very attractive. However, for others, it might just be, I just want to be a bit more calm and make better decisions. So, how do you kind of navigate all that? Yeah, well, I think, um, like you say there, it, it starts from what you want. Um, and usually this depends on, usually, uh, usually a lot of people that, that go into the spiritual path that really want to uh, go for self-realization, if you like, uh, enlightenment, freedom. Um, this is usually people that they tend to have had a lot of suffering in life and they're wanting to end that in some way. Uh, other people, like you say, is if they just want to reduce their stress and anxiety or uh, just be a, have a little bit more Zen in their life, then um, then it's interesting because they both kind of start at the same place in a way. I would say now there's it it depends on the on the person and how their body mind is as a machine. So some some people. Uh, for instance, myself, very much um, when I started, it was very much a, a bodily thing because my particular body mind is, is someone's, someone whose who's mind, I'm, I'm upstairs a lot. And that's common. A lot of people have a, a similar sort of mind like that, but some people are very much bodily, you know, um, and it's, wherever the identification is, is usually where the practice will, will go. So say uh, someone who, who's say more in their body would watch their mind and someone who's more in their mind would probably be observant of their body. Um, that's, that's a very like sort of um, basic <laughs> way that I'm saying that, but, um, but there's so many different paths. Like you say, Zen, I used to go to Zen. I used to live in a Zen center for a few years. Um, but then, you know, on a Thursday and a Sunday night, I would go and venture out and I would go and sit with Sufis, you know, in a Sufi center nearby. Uh, and Sufi meditation is completely different to Zen. Sufi is heartfulness. Zen is mindfulness. You know, Zen is being conscious and mindfulness. Sufism is like kind of don't even worry about being mindful, just immerse yourself in your heart and they, they call it God, but they mean the same thing as, you know, you, the universe or, um, you know, the eternal or whatever consciousness, it means the same thing. Um, so it comes from a, a different, a different angle. So where to start depends on, depends on how you're, how you are. And that's, that's kind of where, where I would navigate someone when they come to sort of my, my meditation sessions and, and they're asking, you know, how do I, how do I get, get started with this? What's life like living in a Zen center? (laughs) 
Uh, so my is a lay, the, where I lived, it wasn't like a monas- monastery. It was a lay Zen center. So it was like a house and then the bottom floor was converted into a, a basically like where everyone sat and the, the Zendo. And, um, and then it was like three or four times a week, people would come and the, the, the Zen practitioner would come and meditate. And, and then a couple of times a year, we'd have retreats there and a few other retreats, a, a, a center outside of, you know, an actual retreat center. Um, the first thing I noticed when I moved into the Zen center was like an energy, you know, and my room, which is on the floor above, was directly above the dojo. So in a way, I was quite lucky because I got <laughs> a lot of this very, I mean, you'd think a lot of peace and Zen and, but uh, a lot of energy is, it can be quite confronting, you know, uh, it's, it can be quite strong and almost overwhelming because when you go into a place like that, one of two things that you get, you get caught into the wave of that energy and you, and it either kind of, uh, uplifts you and you join that that kind of higher vibration if you would like but it's not uncommon as well for people to come into a zen center uh, or any you know spiritual place like that where a lot of spiritual practice is done and to to sort of be a bit freaked out by it um because it's kind of like uh it's kind of like shining a light into something that's been dark for a while and it's been dark for a reason whatever this this light is shining on so once it's once the light is shone then that can be quite scary it's kind of you know if you was in a dark room and then you turned the light on you saw a tiger and then you turned the light back off you can't pretend that you didn't see that tiger you know like so usually the thing would be to to run out of there but sometimes you'll turn the light on and there'll be you know a beautiful rose flower or something you know like so yeah it's <laughs> i experienced both of those things going living in the zen center yeah that's a beautiful analogy actually i think that can be used in any form of health improvement right because mm you start eating cleanly stuff starts to come up you're bringing all this light into the body and it can be scary it can be hard it can be emotional and a lot of times people then say oh that's not for me no that was that didn't work for me because we're stuff was coming up that they perhaps didn't want to deal with. They saw the tiger and they thought, Oh, I never want to see that tiger again. (laughs) Oh, that was horrible. Yeah. Um, The Dalai Lama says when these things come up, when we see the tiger, uh, the best way to deal with that tiger is to deal with it right then, right there, go into the tiger, feel it, understand it. Um, and I guess if I'm being a bit esoteric for some people, you know, perhaps what I'm saying is whenever in life things come up, as we improve our health, we shift our consciousness, um, things are going to come up and the best time to deal with them is then and feeling into them. Maybe it's the fear of death, fear of dying early, right? Mm. 
if we actually sit and spend time with that fear and understand it, then when it actually comes time for that, we'll be less stressed. We'll have more of an understanding. Might still be hard, but we'll have sort of felt that already instead of not accepting it, distracting ourselves, moving away from it, pretending the tiger was never there. <laughs> yeah. Pretending that fear was never there. And then when things go wrong or things happen, it can be really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think, uh, you know, what's, what starts to happen is, and, and if it doesn't, you can kind of choose to understand this as well. But the understanding starts to happen that <clears throat> when you see this tiger, um, that actually if you run away from this, this Zen center that brought this tiger out or wherever it was, or this diet, um, wherever you run away to, the tiger goes with you. So like you, you can't, you, if you understand that and experience that literally, then it becomes senseless to run away. And in that intermediate state of, okay, I can't run away and this tiger's here, but how to deal with it. And so then you're in this sort of middle ground and either by kind of the right understanding or just continuously revisiting, not running away. It gets resolved or it either doesn't need to get resolved. And like you say, um, it reminded me of a quote. I think it was from St. John of the Cross, actually. I'm not quite sure, but I think it was. Um, and he's, he said that enlightenment is the, oh, what was it? Enlightenment was, is the absolute cooperation, is 100% cooperation with the inevitable. And that can be translated to whatever you're, running from you actually cannot run from and you will need to deal with it at some point so like you said and this is why i, I like that you went onto the sort of diet stuff because this has been a big part of my journey as well the diet and you know particularly through through an illness i had it 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 brought up so much of what i was hiding from and this is even you know this started to happen when i was in the zen center and I would even say it could have even been because it was sped up by being in a Zen center or, you know, and doing all of the inner work I was doing, which doesn't sound very healthy at all, but it actually is, you know, it's like, um, it's, it's like, it's like if you have, if you're ill with migraines and you keep taking medication, we all know that there's side effects and there's the, the, there's a, definitely a bad side to medication. So when you're taking that, it might reduce the migraine if it does at all. Um, but there's, there's, it's, it's not dealing with the underlying issue. And it, that you you still have a headache, whether you're experiencing it or not, or a migraine, <laughs> like it's still there. So when it comes up and it doesn't feel pleasant and it feels horrible, this is a sign of good health. It's healthy to get that out. You know, this is where the, the, the kind of understanding um, has shifted in me through, through this journey, yeah. I think that's where meditation can play a massive role because, as you said, you 
you can have that separateness in a way from what's happening and it allows you to shift the angle that you approach it with, right? Yeah. Like what you're saying, I mean, if we don't deal with something, um, it'll, it'll come with you and it, it, it may show up in another form, but it'll be the same thing happening if we don't deal with it. Yeah. And dealing with that stuff, it's, it's hard, it's uncomfortable, um, but, you know, we grow um, <laughs> through that. Uh, I think it's the same thing with, with getting healthy too. Um, detoxing sucks. <laughs> you know, like, um, yeah. well, even then, I mean, I can reframe that, right? Detoxing is, is, uh, can be challenging. However, uh, you know, we've lived for a certain amount of time on this planet not giving our body what it needs, not meeting its needs. Uh, and so we're going to have to go through a degree of pain to get that out. Whether that's mentally, maybe we've been feeding ourselves the wrong kind of beliefs. Um, maybe we've been feeding ourselves the wrong food or the wrong relationships. Getting those things out is hard, um, but you come out the other side and you're a better person for it. I've heard some uh, interesting stories about uh, Zen meditation. Um, tell me a little bit more about how a Zen practice works. A Zen practice? Well, I was... Um how would I describe myself? I guess you could say I was a bit of a, <laughs> I guess a bit of a rebel in one sense, because wherever I went, I never really followed the practice, um, which now I understand why, because it wasn't because of um, just rebelling for just for the sake of it. It was just whenever someone gave me a practice, it felt like it took me backwards. Um, but a Zen practice um so mine was just, I kind of already had, uh, I just, I, I sort of understood there's a knack to this more than an actual technique. But for, for, I'd say for 90% of people, they need a practice. Um, and Zen is, Zen is very simple. So there's, there's sort of two practices and one, I guess, leads on to the other. And the first practice is, well, both are forms of Zazen. Um, and the first form of Zazen is one where you just do breath counting. So you'll be breathing in one and breathing out two and so on until you get to 10. And then you'll start from the beginning again and you'll basically continue that. And whenever your mind wanders off, if it wanders off, you've only got to five, you just start again at one and you keep going. And then when the mind is become stabilized and you're able to hold this count continuously for a period of time, then you can, instead of inhaling on one and exhaling on two, you can inhale on one and exhale and then inhale on two and exhale. So you, what you're doing is you're starting to experience larger, larger, you're having larger experiences of silence. So without, account for your mind to hold on to and then you progress and then as you could progress you you drop the count and you just start following the breath altogether and this is quite a this can be quite well 
can be quite challenging. But after you've become proficient at that, then you can start to, well, I guess Zen do it in a different way. You would then start to slowly move on to a practice called Shikantaza. And Shikantaza is, is basically, uh, it's, all, it's almost n no technique in a, in a sense. It's just being alert and, a present, and present of every, everything at once. Um, I guess you could kind of compare it to sort of, imagine if you're sitting still and you would have to remain absolutely, absolutely relaxed and restful, but also incredibly alert as if you was in the middle of a jungle with tigers or tigers again. Uh, that kind of alertness, but in a relaxed way. This is what shikantaza can be described as. And that is more or less where all techniques lead to. Um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how, how a Zen practice was. Now, there is another side to Zen, and it's called um, Zen Koans. And a koan practice is like when the teacher gives you a kind of riddle that's impossible to solve. Um, and an example of a Zen koan would be, uh, what's the sound of a one-handed clap? And every time you go to the teacher, you would have to present, well, what's the sound? You know, he will ask you, so what's the sound of a one-handed clap? And you would have to, display that to him. And that doesn't mean, it's not necessarily literally, but you have to present that as your being. You have to answer with your being in a way. So like, um, you know, there would be, another one is just um, who is, who's hearing, who's hearing the sound, who's hearing the sounds. And I remember once we was having a, um, we was in the middle of a retreat like a one day retreat, which we do once a month and our teachers there and, um, and our teacher just looked at someone, this guy from the opposite side of the room from him. And he said, um, so who's hearing the sound? And the, the, the student said back to him, well, you tell me who's hearing the sound. And the teacher threw a stick at him. He didn't throw it, you know, like, you know, he didn't try to hit him, but he threw it like, you know, nearby him. And, um, and he said, do you get it? And this is like, um, you see, it's not really that they're not really designed to be answered. In fact, they're impossible to be answered with your mind. So the whole thing is to kind of make you answer without your mind. And you can only when you present that to the teacher, they're like, you'll only, they, they are the only ones who will be able to say, yes, you got it or no. Cause you know, if the student threw the stick back and the teacher went, yes, then you, you couldn't think, Oh, the right answer is to throw the stick back. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. The teacher's looking for the, the beingness in this person. Yeah. How many hours does it take to kind of get to that? point or even you're saying you know counting on every in and out breath instead of um every single breath you know? uh to get to beingness you say 
Um, well, literally none. <laughs> it takes not even a second, in fact, um, because in meditation, uh, you start, you, you end where you begin, uh, which is now. And really, that, that's, the, that's the ultimate truth. But in practical terms, you know, it could, I don't know, if I had to give a, a general sort of time frame, it takes a number of years to, to start dis disidentifying for your mind to the point where this is becoming a normal state for you, where you live, or living as beingness. Because it's not that uh, we're not beingness already. That's already the case. It's really just... Um, it's really just remembering that over and over again until that becomes the kind of natural way that you are. Until there's no remembering anymore. It's just, it's like a, you know, it's not like a, almost in the beginning, it's, yeah, it's that constant remembrance, but then the fragrance of it is just, it just emanates. And you, actually what started to happen with me is like, a lot of people would say to me, like, so, so how long do you meditate for, like, every day or something? And, and it's like, well, if I say one hour or two hours or whatever I say, it's false because it's not like, you know, I sit down and meditate for an hour and then it's over. You know, it's not something you can switch off after a while. So I would say it, to get to a point where meditation is a – is a kind of permanent or meditativeness is a sort of permanent fixture in your life. That takes probably, it took me about three years, three and a half years of intense meditation. So that would look like, you know, a few hours per day, uh, plus practicing, walking, talking, listening, uh, alongside going to, you know, three to four retreats per year, something like that. But then other people are different, you know. Other people, they do much less. Um, but I just became a bit addicted. Um, and, yeah, that's, I guess, for, I guess you could say probably between five and ten years if you're committed. Mm. Yeah. Would you say really that the, the practice of actually sitting uh, is really just, it, it is a practice in that you do that to get to the point where you can experience that, that mindfulness or that heartedness, like you said, just during the day to day. Yeah. So sitting is the only difference between sitting and activity is that you're setting aside activity for the sole focus of remembrance or for the sole focus of mindfulness. Same thing, essentially. Um, and in terms of activity, like if you, they both complement each other. So like um, when you sit and you meditate in like, we call it formal practice, when you're doing formal meditative practice, it will start to spill over into your active life. So you'll start becoming more mindful as you're just doing your day-to-day -day things. 
And if you become more mindful in your active life, it will start to spill over into your formal practice. So you'll find it easier to stay in longer states of, of mindfulness and, um, and, and you'll, you'll start forgetting less. So until eventually there stops being such a differentiation between the two, you know, it's, it's, uh, this is when it starts to sort of become uh, like a samadhi state where it's kind of absorption, if you like. Um, and when it's absorption, like it is, is what it says on the tin, it's you're just absorbed in it, whether you're sitting or whether you're, you know, sweeping the floor. Yeah. Can you lose that state? Um, yes, you can. And until you can't. <laughs> that sounds like a Zen riddle in itself. <laughs> well, until the mind has become like a, until the, until the, the ego has completely disappeared in this absorption state, there is a permanent shift that happens where it can't be lost. Now that hasn't, I haven't experienced that yet. I've had moments of experience of that, which is profound and, and life-changing. Um, however, if you don't continue, it's like kind of anything, you know, if you don't continue to, to, to practice, it's a skill that just kind of... I guess the truth is that it can be lost, but it, the depths can be lost, but it can't be lost, you know? So, cause the experiences I've, I've experienced it where there's been huge amounts of forgetfulness, especially over this, this, um, you know, illness that I was experiencing a lot of resistance and fear coming up, but it was, it's never lost. It was, it's always there. There's always a degree of absorption there it's just the depth is 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 not there as much when you're when you're not practicing regularly basically would you say that the the insight is there you still like once you've been to that place and you've captured some of those insights you on insights about the mind and the nature of mind and suffering you understand that however it's been my my experience that I go through a period of meditating regularly, you know, and I'm not talking heaps. I'm talking like half an hour a day, you know, I'm not breaking any records. Um, however, like over time kind of builds up and, and you experience certain things, you start to understand more. However, then I, if, if that f practice falls away for me, that the understanding of it is still there. And some of those insights I might've gleaned through that regular practice is still there. Uh, however, yeah, the depth isn't there. That's what it feels so, like. Yeah, so, so what I'm talking about really, it's not so much an insight, it's experiential. So it's like insights are obviously you experience an insight um, and, and it's profound, but it leaves a, it's, it's literally like a door has opened up in you, the floodgates have opened, but you they they can't be closed anymore 
And there's a causeless flow of peace and joy and bliss, which sounds very nice and like, but it's actually experiential. Nothing good is happening. Uh, apparently, you know, you haven't landed a big client in your business or you're, you haven't just got married or got a new partner or won the lottery. Like nothing apparently great is going on, but a joy and a bliss arises for no apparent reason whatsoever. And this is just the fragrance of the flower. It's the fragrance of someone who's in the permanent state of beingness. Now that can lessen. And this is not an insight, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a literal insights come out of this, you know, but this is a literal, literally something shifting energetically within and, and once that's shifted, like I say, it's just, it can't be switched off. It can only be, uh, it shines so much light that nothing can hide. You realize you don't have one tiger anymore. You have so many. So at the same time, you experience so much bliss and joy, um, but then so much fear and anger. This is a common thing as well. Not everyone is like this, but it was my experience. And so in, in the facing of those things as they arise, then the, the, the kind of, uh, what, what do we call it? Like the, the, this flow of joy, that degree of it can, can be lessened in those times. But, it, but that eventually absorbs those, those tigers as well. Those damn tigers. <laughs> <laughs> I know, they're everywhere. <laughs> Sometimes they're jaguars or birds <laughs> coming in all directions. Oh, yeah, there's many, not just tigers. <laughs> Um, you went through a pretty profound experience uh, when you were fasting um, yeah. and you were meditating a lot and I guess trying to understand <laughs> what was going on. However, there was a degree of suffering which you experienced, um, which seemed pretty, um, there were a lot of tigers, <laughs> it seemed like, <laughs> from my perspective. Um, yeah. What was that like and how did you kind of, t well, tell us a bit more about what you're going through, but also how did you manage that suffering at that time and how did you continue to see it as not you when you were in a state where you felt like you were, you know, dying? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just to give the audience, I guess, a bit of background. Uh, we, when we were fasting together, I did 26 days and uh, I was – fasting to heal colitis that I had at the time. And could you explain uh, which are colitis is inflammatory bowel disease. So if you've heard of Crohn's disease, I guess you could call like colitis, the, the sister of Crohn's or the brother or whatever. So it's basically a chronic inflammation of the large intestine. There's different forms of it, but basically you can't really eat anything. It's pretty miserable. So you lose a lot of weight. You're not absorbing correctly. Um, and anything that you eat other than raw fruit and even tender leafy greens is tough, um, but um, is, is excruciatingly painful. And even fruit in the recovery process is, is even painful as well. But that was what I was there to, to heal. 
And yeah, I went through a tremendous amount of suffering uh, during the, the fast. And it wasn't so much, uh, I mean, it was physical. I was, I was very weak towards the end. I uh, fasted already in a sort of a, a weakened state. Um, but, you know, the fast really helped. Uh, physically, it really helped. And it, but more so the emotional purging, the emotional detox that, that really happened. So I remember I did a lot of the fast in silence uh, because I kind of expected this to happen. Um, I think I did about 10 day, nine days, maybe the first nine of the 26 in silence. And uh, I literally, I just, you know, wore the little, uh, would they have a badge or a ribbon or something? It was a little ribbon that signified yeah. people who weren't uh, speaking. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I just wore one of those for the first nine days. And, um, and that was, and I just basically did meditation. I wasn't, you know, reading or watching, you know, any, anything on my laptop or watching the movies with people. Um, and then the heat really started to build up. I decided to, to break my, my silence just because of the intensity and just some relief that I needed to talk to people. Uh, people like yourself that was when we started to really kind of grow close and I remember the final I think it was the last five, four or five days I couldn't hardly walk at all and I was in a really weakened state but I just had this anxiety that and the story that was coming up was what if I have lost all of this weight and then I, I'm not able to eat and I'm still in, but what if, you know, my stomach reacts and I'm not able to, to eat like, like before, then I'm going to just keep, I'm already severely deteriorated. And now I'm, I could be knocking on death's door. This is the story that was, that was going on. How did I keep my distance from it? The truth is in that state, I didn't, um, I attempted to, and I, I, I had moments of that, but you see, they was all just attempts to change what was actually going on. So it wasn't, it's another way of saying, okay, how can I distance myself so that this situation will change? And this is not true distance. The true distance really is how can I distance myself regardless of whether this changes or not? It's not whether this fear or, or whether my physical state changes is not so much important. In fact, you can't be distant really. If you're, if you, there's a hidden motive for this to change, I'll only be distant. And why is it not changing? You know, being distant, it's not changing yet. So what happened was I got to the last five days and I had no energy whatsoever physically. And I almost had no, it was almost as if the physical energy that I, the lack of physical energy I had forced me to surrender to this. So it wasn't like this courageous, willing surrender, like I surrender to all of my fear and emotion, nothing like that. It was like, I am exhausted from trying and surrender just happened. And as a result, I no longer cared uh, if I was not able to eat. When we started to refeed, 
uh, I was just in a state of just being willing to die. And when we came to eat, I remember, because you, uh, I think you was one of the people that helped me. You carried me to, <laughs> to, uh, to, the, to the lunch hall. And um, I was able to eat, and which was the greatest tiny little meal I've ever had. Um, and, and as a result, it, there's something about not, not caring about, and uh, to that point where, whether you're going to die or not. And if you, when, when I stopped sort of, it's not that I wasn't scared or, or I wasn't, uh, I stopped or I didn't want to live. It wasn't like that. It was like, I was just willing to die, you know? Had you accepted um, death in that moment? I accepted it. I accepted that I might even be scared when it happens. Um, and I, I, and, and that was really uh, the surrender, more so than what you might imagine surrender to be as this fear is gone. And it was like, if fear's here, that's okay. I, that's, I'm surrendering to this, you know. Um, and from then, I started to actually heal. <laughs> I was able to eat uh, much more than, well, I was able to fully, I could eat basically anything. Um, and my health grew then, but the journey did continue after that. Yeah. And so it does. And by eating basically anything, you don't mean like a packet of uh, Red Rock Deli um, honey soy chips, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, what I meant was by that is uh, that pre prior to the fast would have killed me. After the fast, <laughs> I could have eaten that if I wanted to, but it, it, it wouldn't have killed me. Um, and uh, I tried as well, <laughs> but I. Uh, but what I mean was really like there was just. I'd say the pain of colitis symptoms was reduced by, I'd say 80 to 90%, which is massive. You're going from someone who would every few days, I'd have to just go straight on juice because that was the only way I could get any form of calories or, or anything like that. And I was, there would be, you know, blood from my stool every morning. Um, fluctuate from like severe bloody diarrhea to, to chronic constipation. Um, and I was having three, three bowel movements a day or however many times I ate per day, I would have that many bowel movements. Um, and, and just having my energy eventually come back after, you know, we're still a bit weak after the fast, but, um, and just, my health, I was just transformed after the fast, essentially. Yeah. There's some things I want to unpack there, but um, I just want to jump back to when you were experiencing that sense of uh, relinquishing to what it was that was going to happen, uh, letting go. Could you have done that at the start of the fast? Could you have just, just let go of the outcome? and just being more present, do you think? At that time, no. Um, but now I'd say yes. 
because but I feel like I had to for me personally I had to go go through that um so I already know that um you know the next fast I do is not going to be uh with a goal in mind actually it's just going to be another part of the journey you know not so much like oh please I pray this heals me you know it's another way of kind of trying to to get away from the situation really it's more um this is just more part of the process. I'm very grateful more for the process now than uh, because I've changed who, who, who I was back then is, is um, this is not the same, same person now. That's, that's been that part of me at least has been, been purged now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's fasting, isn't it? <laughs> that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, I think a wise man once said, um, "This is a—it's raw, both, both inside and outside, or something like that." I can't recall his name. <laughs> he sounds like he was pretty switched on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit about suffering. I also wanted to just touch on silence, and by that I mean. Silence in general, like I'm sitting in a room that's silent right now, uh, but silence in the mind. But I also extend that to silence in us not distracting ourselves. And, you know, I was just back in Melbourne for a few days um, and the distraction in a big city is significant and we distract ourselves from the tigers <laughs> or from our own demons and these things. Um, and I just see now more than ever the importance of silence uh, and what that can bring for us. And even in terms of just abstaining from certain things, right? Abstaining from screens or abstaining from social media or abstaining from certain foods. Uh, and then, and then when you go back to those things, the appreciation is just out of this world, you know, and you maybe see them and understand them a little bit differently. But how do you kind of, I guess, how do you cultivate silence in your life and how do you kind of, I guess, manage that in what is such a distracting world that we live in? I think in me, through through all of the the, the sort of practice and, living this way of life um i've come to the understanding that silence is not anything to do with the the absence of noise so uh your room may be silent but you may not be experiencing silence you know so this is this is where the understanding is and at the same time you could be in a busy marketplace they call it buddha in the marketplace you know uh, where you're it's business craziness going on. Um, but really there's deep silence at the same time. Um, so the way that I've cultivated that in my life is just through meditation and mindfulness alongside uh, inquiry as well, or meditative inquiry, which is really just that essentially just means questioning your beliefs. And once you've busted them, you discover what's left. And um, through that, 
my understanding is, is and my experience is, is that even thoughts, that doesn't mean you can't have a silent mind, even with thoughts, because silence is kind of experienced as already being the case. So even in the most intense emotional experience where their mind is going crazy and telling a story about this feeling we're having and judging or is fearful of this situation, um, it's all happening in the field of silence. And when over and over again, through my mindfulness and meditation, I continuously just kept remembering that and resting not in that, but as that. Then I, I, I had a moment where I, I couldn't find myself where there's this silence and I'm resting as it. I couldn't, I couldn't find the, where I started and where the silence starts or where the silence ends. There was no differentiation. And when this moment happened, I, I discovered that I am that silence. Um, so I can't leave it even if I tried <laughs> and with that um, it's just been a constant remembrance of that so that's been the real cultivation of, of how silence has become a bigger part of my life um, and the more silent you become the more you also notice how you try to run away from silence which is impossible um, but we, how we try to do it anyway through whatever phones or uh, you know, habits and stuff. Yeah. Is that because the closer we get to silence, the more we see the tigers <laughs> and all these scary things? Basically, it's like when I started to really, it started when I, when I started meditating, you know, my biggest concerns were like, just like our oh, bodily pain and discomfort, you know, like, and, um, or just, you know, my mind just being too noisy, which is, which is most people's experience when they first start meditating. However, this is like a, the surface sort of layer. Once you meditate for a while, and it only takes, I'd say, a few months of consistent practice, especially if you're, you're in a group, in a sangha, meditating together, there'll be a natural sort of uh, distancing that happens, and the mind will start to settle. And at that point, there can be a real peace and joy. But it isn't long before these big tigers, big demons start arising again. Um, because it's almost as if my experience was I had to get rid of this layer. I remember I couldn't even sit still for 10 minutes when I first started, just the bodily pain and was just way too, I was just way too irritated. But, yeah. yeah, that's, and all of that gross kind of these gross sensations. But once I kind of came through that point, I, there's, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a paradox. There's, it, a real joy and peace that starts to arise because that stuff has settled down. But then there's also like a deeper layer of irritation and a deeper layer of whatever you, you know, is under there. Um, yeah. So um, what was the question? I forgot now. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was just saying that when, uh, is it as we kind of get closer to this silence? Ah, yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So, and it is like that. It's um, people kind of think the more you meditate, the more peaceful you get. And, and that is true, but it's actually what you, what they don't think of or, or know about is that the more you become more silent, 
the more you hear everything else. So the more you hear the noise, which is tigers, leopards, whatever, <laughs> the big, all the big cats. Um, <laughs> and actually, um, a lot of, um, you know, Eckhart Tolle, if you've, if you've um, heard his story of his awakening, the closer he got, he was getting, you know, to a point of suicide almost, if I remember rightly. He, he just didn't want to live anymore. So there's a, a becoming that silent, it, there's something starts to die. Um, and that's often experienced as not a good thing. But if you have a spiritual palate or, you know, a, a taste for purification, then you understand that this is, this is the deep purge that's happening. And it's the same with fasting, you know, when you experience it more and, and on the, the raw food, living, especially high fruit, there's a lot of symptoms, old things that start to come up physically and, and the thoughts associated with that. But if you can sense and where, what's going on, you, you can detect what's genuinely, oh, something's actually up, which is hardly ever the case. And 99 times out of 100, it's usually just a sign of detoxification. You know, it's, um, it's like when you, you, if you've got, a, you know, the flu and you start to throw up, it's horrible and unpleasant, but it's a good sign. You know, you're, you're, you're purging, you're getting all of that that's not wanted out. Um, so it's the same with, with, with silence. All the noise starts to come as the, the deeper you go into it. Yeah, I love that. It's um, it's exactly how it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah. It's really scary. I'm really hoping people are understanding the tiger analogy. Otherwise, they're going to be like, what? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh yeah. Let me know. I'll change it for next time. <laughs> yeah. Next time we'll, when the lights come on, there's a, a, a nice pizza in the corner. Or a yeah. Yeah. I think maybe that's an easier one. Eh? <laughs> yeah. yeah that thought. was one of my tigers actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice pizza. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, man. That stuff comes up. It's uh, yeah. Pizzas, burritos, lollies, you name it. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> it's all there. That's it. But um, it's actually very interesting because the, 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 what we're talking about, like this sort of meditative or spiritual process, if you like, is, is virtually synonymous to, to the, the raw food living process, which is what it's, it's, um, it's the, the detoxification that happens in meditation is exactly the same as it happens in, in, um, uh, as in the, the structure of it is the same in actual physical, you know, rejuvenation, uh, detoxification. And why is that? Like what's actually going on there when we're eating raw fruits? Like why is it a similar experience? Well, firstly, like in the, the actual physical side of it and the same reason why most people stop meditating when they start they stop meditate. They start a meditation practice for a few days or so. Their mind goes crazy. They say, "Well, I can't meditate, so it's not for me." You know. Um, and in the same way, when people go on, say, the raw food diet or uh, you know some detoxification program with fruits, is like the fruits. They're so highly detoxifying and astringent. They start pulling out on, on all those toxins and they start getting circulated around the system again. You start feeling like shit. 
who would who wouldn't feel like shit when there's toxins floating around their system so when you stop meditate uh, when you uh, stop still for once and start to sit in silence without distracting of course whatever you've been distracting yourself from comes up so these are the mental toxins and in the the sort of fruit world or the detoxing world <laughs> they're the physical to uh, toxic so the structures are saying it's just a it's just a different different process hmm. yeah spot on and one thing i want to mention is it's interesting to think about like in the fruit world or in the detox world as you said um i think that needs to be reframed too because is it the detox world or is it just <laughs> the world that actually we thrive in but because we're so far from that we go through detoxification <laughs> yeah um, well, I, it, you know I, I, a lot of people call that like, like a healing diet i remember the first time i heard about raw foods it was like 90 day raw foods i was like that sounds impossible <laughs> um, and it was talked about as a healing diet when well actually no it's just the diet <laughs> but for everyone it makes them heal and detox because we're full of toxins and you know foreign bodies just floating yeah. around our system causing us issues you know yeah yeah that's it it's um it's you're right it's not actually um a healing diet or there's no detox world um it's just everyone's basically you've basically been putting into their bodies the wrong thing i i have done it i ended up with colitis you don't end up with that for just <laughs> You know, people that eat raw food and fruit and, you know, do fasting and that kind of stuff don't end up with colitis or those kind of, those kind of health issues. Um, it's just, it's just chemically impossible. So really this body, the way I, I, this is really why I like to, I know you had Lauren on last uh, few weeks ago, um, I really liked Lauren's way uh, of it's just very s simplistic that look at the, the biological, the anatomy of our bodies and then what we're designed to eat. And then fruit, it just happened. If, whether it, if it was meat, I would eat meat, you know, but it, it's not, it's fruit um, and tender leafy greens. So they are the things that just happen to digest the easiest in the body. And that's not a healing diet. It will heal if you're toxic because it's, it's just the right thing to eat. It digests the quickest. It hydrates us better than any other foods. Um, and after you do start doing a certain amount of detoxifying, you start to experience the rewards of that, of having more energy, feeling lighter, and also feeling clear in the mind as well and i always would go back to meditation because it's exactly the same it's just the opposite as you become more silent and more uh, say more in a remembrance of silence you start to feel lighter in your body and as you feel more light in your body through the fruit diet you'll start to become more silent in your mind that's just what i've that's been a clear clear thing that i've I've noticed. 
And there's a duality to it as well, right? Which I think is also the same in both worlds. Uh, certainly in the, you know, as you start to cleanse and heal, you have those moments where you're like, whoa, I'm feeling good. Yeah. Like, wow. But then at the same time, there's like, as you're going through the process, like there's that other kind of mind of yours that's telling you other things or, you know, maybe you're not feeling uh, as well in certain areas, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's- similar, kind of, similar kind of thing with, uh, with meditation, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's, it's, it's exactly what you explained. Like um, you really can't look at someone who's on a, who's still in the process of detoxifying and say that that's not good for you because of look at how you are or you and in the same way, you can't look at someone who say in an emotion, like you saw me in an emotional state. Now the common world wouldn't think, Oh my God, you, you lived in a Zen set for how many years? Or like, it just, it wouldn't look, um, like to our minds, it's, it's not logical. And that's because this isn't logical. This, well, it is in one sense if you understand it, but um, based on appearance, it, that's not how it works. So, yeah, in the same way, you, you, as you start to detox your mind, you, deeper fears are ready to be met and deeper anxieties and deeper anger and despair is ready to be met. And at the same time, when you go into deeper levels of detoxification physically, that deeper cellular level of toxins is ready to be met and start circulating. So you could be on your journey for, like I've experienced it, you know, for a couple of years now. And, um, you know, uh, what was it, two months ago, you know, I went through a huge healing crisis, uh, having a lot of pain and uh, just zapped of energy. But at the same time, I was full of life. You know, it's, uh, there's a thread that's there. Like we were saying before with the meditation, there's something there all the time that's full of light. But if you get identified with what's going on and you don't, usually that's because of a lack of understanding, then you're gonna, you're gonna misinterpret what's, what's happening. Um, and if you've ever done like a, you know, like an ayahuasca ceremony and when you're you know, you have a huge emotional upsurge and you're even throwing up. They call it getting well. Um, and it's the same with this process. You find, I've found that all paths of truth actually have the same process. They're just, the content looks different, <laughs> but, but, uh, but the context is all, it's the same. And by that, you mean pain first and then joy later? Basically, every toxin that's in the body every emotional hidden uh, suppressed emotion that's that you've suppressed has to be re-experienced before it's released it's just there's a there's no way around it not that i've found which is why there's no better time to get healthy than right now right exactly exactly yeah health is now it's not in the future mm. I love that. I've got presentness written down, but I don't think I could really sum it up any more than what you just said. So I don't (laughs) even think we need to go there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One thing I do want to uh, get into uh, before we wrap it up is where do these thoughts actually come from? Hmm. 
Well, I've traced thoughts back, and the answer is we can go into it and say that they come from mum or dad or school or your teachers. But do, is that true? Because when you literally trace them back in your experience and try to find the source of them, they come from nowhere. They seem to arise out of space. Yeah. So then when they arise and they leave, really um, a good question, a good follow-on question would be, well, where do they come from? Okay. They come from seemingly out of space. So when they come and leave, what's left? And that's where you start to really discover the silence that we've been speaking of and, uh, and touching on. And then another follow on question from that is, and where do you exist? Where's the difference between you and silence? This is a Zen koan for you. Now you're starting to maybe understand Zen. <laughs> don't throw a stick at me. <laughs> Lucky, we've got screens. <laughs> I'd only break my screen. <laughs> yeah. um, whilst we're all marinating in that, um, to wrap up, um, I'd like to ask, uh, what's the... You've been through some stuff, you know, I'm sure when you're fasting, you're, you're sweating at some stage, uh, maybe running around in Costa Rica or something, but what's the sweatiest you've ever been, mate? The sweatiest I've ever been. You know, um, Maxine emailed me this question, so I did give it some thought. And um, you know, the one that the thought that keeps coming back is... <laughs> well, we've got to be careful how I answer this but there is it, a <laughs> this is an yeah. explicit podcast <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was actually on a meditation retreat uh, a Vipassana retreat actually so it was a number of years ago I've been on quite a few Vipassanas now um, but this was my first one and it was sort of early in my my meditation days and, you know, I was enthusiastic and had so much, uh, you know, gusto to go for it. And it got to like, I think the day four or five. And, you know, as you're getting the instructions, he said, now every hour that we meditate from the start to the finish, you're not allowed to move your posture. So you don't make an adjustment. Don't open your eyes if your eyes are closed or don't move your hands. Just remain in that posture. Now, if anyone's ever tried to sit for an hour um, without moving an inch, um, it's quite challenging. But on top of five days of doing that anyway, uh, and then not being able to relieve yourself a little bit by just moving, um, I had a lot of... <laughs> It's amazing how sweat, sweaty you can get when you're holding so much inner tension. Um, I don't experience that so much anymore because uh, I've been doing it for so long. 
and I'm not saying my body's got used to it, but my mind has definitely got used to it. But the resistance that my mind had and the deep discomfort I was experiencing, the physical pain, my knees, but still I was determined, you know. I was dripping, dripping with sweats. This, I was probably quite smelly as well. And it was, it, this was, a, it was like a, you know, I think it was January. It was like January, February time. Um, to like the height of the Aussie summer. And, uh, oh, I was dripping. And, you know, this is an enclosed space, so there's, there wasn't really, I don't think there was much air con going on as well. So I was just, there was nowhere for this <laughs> sweat to go <laughs> except soaking my clothes. Yeah. Were other people sweating too? I was in too much pain to even notice. Like, I was just, uh, oh, it was just, I'm sure, I'm sure I wasn't the only one, but I did see a few, what happens in Vipassana, like on, well, not just Vipassana, but many meditation retreats is like, you're sitting there and everyone's in silence and there's a few people in front, a few people behind and to the side of you. And I remember like, you know, day seven opening my eyes at one point and everyone had left, you know, <laughs> oh. just, they just happened to be near me <laughs> for some reason, but there was like, you know, like there's five or six people around me. They was all gone. And um, they'd just left because it, it must have got intent too intense for them, I guess. Um, so I, I'm sure that I wasn't the only one, but I stayed, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you had that fortitude. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I remember you were saying that you felt like you were doing permanent damage <laughs> in those. That's right. I literally was. And now I know that that was a story I was telling myself about the pain. You see, this is where the, that distance, when, it's, when you're distant enough for long enough, you start to see that there's a pain. And experiencing pain is actually not as bad as, as one, one would imagine. But when you tell a story about it, it gets 10 times worse. Well, that's what we do, right? We tell these stories and we concoct our brain. Can, like our brain has two systems, you know, it thinks fast and it thinks slow. And system one, which thinks fast, is very, very good at creating a story so it makes sense and we don't need to use system two, which uses a lot more energy. And we just create these stories out of nowhere based on whatever the brain has available at that time, which is, you know, past experiences, memories, uh, information it can pick up from the room, right? And we just make this stuff up. And there's a real, uh, I'm cautious to use the word insight now, but there's an understanding around that fact and that actually the likelihood of that being true is actually really, really low. You know, the likelihood is that you're actually just sitting there and it's painful, but as soon as you move, that pain will be relieved and you've done yeah. no damage. Well, it's what I discovered is exactly that from, from my experiences. I was deter determined, you know, and I, I really sat there and bared this pain without telling a story about it. That's the important part. Um, is I recognized all the time, okay, like, oh my God, I'm gonna, am I, am I, I'm gonna need to, you know, have my tendon reattached or something. You know, that's the, th the things like that were going through my head. Um, and I'm gonna do permanent damage here. And, and I, I, I recognize that as a story and I can just, just instead brought my awareness and rested in the pain. 
and it's a restfulness. It's not bearing it. It's, there is a sense of that sometimes, but it's just doing the opposite to resist, basically. It's just resting. And by the end of the retreat, I'd say by the last two days, the pain had gone. It disappeared. Now, you could say my physical body got used to it, maybe, or adapted. And yeah, there's a, there's a, there is an element of that. But there's really a small element, really, because how can such an intense pain, logically, it should get worse, right? It's, if you're in a position that's causing you pain, the longer you stay, it should get worse. But how did it disappear altogether? And how has it never come back? And I've done even more sitting and, and more strenuous, long, much longer sitting periods than a 10-day Vipassana as well. And yet, I don't experience that anymore. How do you, how do you balance that with, you know, I was having a good conversation with a friend, uh, uh, a physio, a couple of days ago, and we we're talking about, well, pain is actually it's actually a, a, one of the ways our body can communicate with us and mm. tell us that there's something wrong, right? In your case, you had colitis, you had excruciating pain, and that was your body saying, hey, Brendan, <laughs> something going on down here that you need to know about. Pay some attention to it, please. So how do you kind of balance that with, I mean, it wouldn't be beneficial to just observe all the colitis pain and keep eating burritos all day, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, if you're really observing the colitis issues, you won't be eating burritos is the, is the truth because it's, it's very much holistic. Like in, in my case, it's to, to observe the symptoms and then go back to eating wouldn't really be true observing because part of observing is here's where it does get a bit mixed up, I guess, because when I was observing my colitis symptoms, it became obvious that I'm running to, I'm in pain and I'm still going to get this pizza. Like <laughs> something is seriously wrong here. Um, but really with, with meditation, like in this, this observing that pain, any human being should be able to sit for a few hours in one position without moving and really not experience too much, too much pain, to be honest. Um, however, and it's the same, even if you were lying down, if I said, just, just don't move and just lay down, you would start to get itchy and a bit agitated, even just laying down. But yet you lay down for six, eight hours a night sleeping and actually feel rejuvenated. So uh, it's, really, it's really like knowing yourself and know, having that sort of, uh, I guess, um, you've got to have a sense for purification. Like what is a purifying thing that's going on here? And what is a, literally, this is a pain, it needs to be physically addressed. Um, and you can only detect that really when you're, willing to observe the pain without telling a story about it. So my colitis symptoms were an obvious sign that something is physically wrong and we need to make a change. And that comes from awareness without telling a story about it, which is why I booked a fasting and now I live on fruit. Um, in a meditation, it's, oh, my God, this is so painful. Oh, my knee is killing me. Am I going to be a – that's a story, you know, if I get rid of that and I just look at this pain as it is, 
okay, there's some, a bit of discomfort here, but it's nowhere near the discomfort that, um, that I'm actually telling the story about. That being said, <laughs> there is something that's completely beyond it all where you can, um, you can kind of override, I would say, any physical thing that's going on through, through your mind. Um, and that's been demonstrated throughout time of great masters and yogis and stuff. But, um, and I've, I've, I've experienced it to a degree myself. I would say even this case of Vipassana was, was a, it was a bit of that too. Yeah. I think also part of it is knowledge and understanding as well, right? Because I know sometimes I meditate and my leg goes numb. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and the stories start going, I think, well, hold on a second here. That means that there's no blood getting down there. So if I sit here for another two hours, like, is that going to cause some damage? <laughs> and it's not yeah. like I've looked into, I suspect probably yeah. not, but mm. I imagine that there's some knowledge that comes with sitting for an hour and being in pain isn't going to cause anything. And that then allows you to see it as something different. Whereas there's also a knowledge that I've got excruciating pain. I'm pooing blood. Uh, I've probably got something going on here that maybe I should treat seriously. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there is, there is a knowledge and like in that example of, you know, if your leg is numb and there's no sensation left in it, then this is the body telling you move your leg cause you've cut the blood off, you know, or you've cut off a nerve or something. Right. Um, so there is, there is like, like you say, there is a play like, and to know that, to know, to have that knowledge of what are the, the triggers, uh, for, for when something needs to be addressed physically, this is a physical thing, um, compared to a, an actual, you know, something, something that's not physical, that's just appearing physical as such. Now I'm not, I wouldn't really suggest to someone, it depends on how deep you want to go, but to go into pain, uh, to meditation without moving is a really deep purifier. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily uh, recommend everyone do that. Um, perhaps only certain people, but, uh, but yeah, what I, what I would say is like, it's, it's not really so much a bearing that, cause then it can become, okay, I need to, you know, bear this pain now, you know, and it's, it's, it's not really about that. It's really about, whether you move or whether you decide to stay in the, in the pain, um, don't, don't betray yourself by doing it with unawareness, whatever you do. So it's really just a case of being mindful while you do that. So if you move, be mindful and do it without any conflict. This is really about no conflict. Um, and if you decide to stay and observe this pain, then you do it without, without conflict either. Um, and if the leg goes numb, move it. <laughs> just don't think to yourself, oh, have I, am I, uh, did I just run away from my pain now? Or did I, <laughs> or, or was this physical? Which one? Like <laughs> that, that's, um, this is conflict, you know? <laughs> isn't, isn't conflict bound to come up when we're dealing with something like yeah. suffering from pain though? Yeah, yeah, continuously. 
continuously. So that's the, that's the real challenge of it, is to continuously see through it. And new conflicts come and there will be that, that happens where there's states of confusion or doubt and not sure if is this right. And this is really, really is, is from my experience is I just did both. So like I would, if it was genuine pain, I would just sit with the pain and then realize after, okay, that was actually too much. I, that was probably a bit stupid. I was just sitting through pain, but I did it through, through doing it, you know, for getting it wrong. And that's, whilst if I, if I didn't move or I did move and I just wasn't sure, I recognize that like that being confused is not, it doesn't really lead to this knowledge or wisdom that comes out of actually doing it. So if you sit for a bit too long with your legs numb, that's all right. It probably won't kill you. Just, um, <laughs> it's, uh, that knowledge will be born out of that mistake or mistake. It's a great life lesson, man. <laughs> sometimes you just got to do it and make the mistakes. That's it. By sometimes, I mean all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, daily. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, Brendan, if people want to find out more about you, if people want to um, learn more from you, where can they find you? So I'm on uh, Instagram as Brendan underscore Dalligan. Uh, I also, from there, you can go to my Linktree page where I have a, um, I, I offer, uh, I obviously have my regular meditations rerun, rerun more or less every week uh, here in Sydney. I also do one-on-one meditation coaching alongside, uh, started to do one-on-one detoxification coaching as well. Uh, so people can book, book a, if they want to book a session with me, they can do that there. I offer everything via donation as well. Um, so uh so yes, that's another little uh, thing I'm I'm doing there. Um, I'm on Facebook as Brendan Dalligan, and I'm also what else am I on? Uh, I think that's it, really. Facebook and uh, Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, maybe uh, you can put the links in the the uh, description. Uh, I will. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think you're on the right path, mate. I know that you are actually. Um, no thinking required. <laughs> Uh, hopefully uh, the Tigers are at bay. (laughs) It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. So thank you so much. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. 